I'm going to tell you a story, the story of how Ebola comes to ELWA. And I'll tell you what ELWA stands for in just a little bit. But first of all, a geography lesson. Most of you here probably don't need this lesson, but uh, um, uh, we're in Liberia. They're in West Africa. Liberia was founded in 1820 by free American blacks, most of whom were former slaves. They came to, they, they came to colonize the area to find a better life. Um, many of them came as committed missionaries to, to evangelize the natives. Some, however, came and, and basically enslaved the, the local people and formed large, large plantations, uh, 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 which still, the name still exists today. Um, and the people who came and, and colonized the area, uh, the descendants of those people are now called the Congo people. And tensions between the, the uh, they, they form the ruling class of the country, and tensions, tensions between them and the local people um, uh, resulted uh, in, in the Civil War and the coup before that in 1981. Um, SIM began its uh, ministry in Liberia in the mid-50s, with the first Christian radio station in Africa. And the government gave the radio station the call sign ELWA. Now, SIM held a contest to determine what could ELWA stand for. And the winning entry was Eternal Love Winning Africa. So that's what, we, what, what, what it stands for now. The hospital, pictured right here, was, was founded in 1965. And you can see it's right on the beach. There we go. Okay. Uh, Liberia has been through a horrific civil war. It lasted 14 years and sort of sputtered to a halt in 2004. Um, the, um, it just destroyed the infrastructure of the country. Uh, even now, 10 years later, after the end of the war, uh, most people, even in the capital city, don't have electricity. Most don't have running water. Several rebel armies just went back and forth and ravaged the country. And one of those rebel, ar- rebel, rebel armies is pictured here. These are Charles Taylor's troops. And he told his troops that if you wear white wedding dresses and, and, and women's wigs, that bullets can't hurt you. These people are fleeing, trying to flee the war. The country considers itself a Christian nation. Um, and like, 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 the, like North America, it's sort of Christianized. Um, <clears throat> the, um, there are many, many committed Christians in the country. Uh, but many just go to church on Sunday but then when something important happens in their life, like a, uh, like a school exam or an illness, they appeal to their tribal religion. Um, the, the Bible is taught in many churches, but in many churches, all you hear is the health and wealth prosperity gospel. Uh, so there's a big need for evangelism and discipleship in the country. Um, SIM's mandate at ELWA Hospital is to try to raise the standards of the hospital. And before Ebola hit, we had a wonderful team of medical doctors. Dr. Rick Saker was there for 15 years. When I came in April 2013, he had had been gone for several years, um, and it was coming back on short-term missions. I came and joined Patrick Aguello and Dr. Afidu Lumfuka, uh, African doctors, and then... uh, uh, Dr. Patrick is a, is a Nigerian-Liberian, and Dr. Afidu Lumfuka is, Lumfuka is from the DRC. And then uh, Dr. John Fankhauser and Dr. Kent Brantley, family doctors, joined us six months later. And then Dr. Jerry Brown came, a general surgeon who is now our medical director. So we had a wonderful team of medical doctors, 
And the, the dream was to have a family practice residency program. Well, our Ebola saga began in late March of 2014. Uh, I was just surfing the Internet and reading headlines and saw this headline, 60 deaths in southern Guinea from Ebola. And I sent this email to our doctors. I thought that you would all be interested in this. It's a bit close for comfort. We all need to be alert to the possibility of seeing something here. And I just thought, well, that's interesting. And then just two days later, we got word that there were six deaths from, from Ebola in northern Liberia. They occurred in a town, the town of Foya, which is right on the border with Guinea. And we knew then we had to prepare. We were concerned that, uh, that Ebola would come our way. And our motivation for, for preparing was to protect our hospital staff. We knew that if, if, if an Ebola patient got into our hospital, into our ER, that our staff might die. So here's Dr. Jerry Brown and I. Are, we, are, we are just talking to our hospital staff at chapel and, and explaining to them what we're going to do. So what is Ebola? A lot of you are medical you, and you read the headlines, you know, but, uh, but I'm gonna just, uh, just going to go over it very briefly. It's a viral disease discovered in the, the, what is now DRC in 1976. Uh, it, it's named after the Ebola River near where the first uh, outbreak occurred. Um, it's thought that the reservoir in the community is in fruit bats, but no one knows for sure. Uh, what happens sometimes is someone's going along and sees a, a, a sick fruit bat, catches it, takes it home for, for, um, for supper. The cooked meat is not dangerous, but when the hunter... Uh, eats it without, with unwashed hands, then perhaps he can, he can become ill. It's easy to tell people, oh, just don't eat bush meat. But, you know, in, in the bush, people don't have a, a lot, many sources of protein. And you have a family to feed, you're going to feed them what you, what, you, uh, what, you can, what you can find. It's thought that uh, it, the virus can be, can, can be in chimpanzees and uh, bush deer and other animals. Uh, there's a bush meat market right down the, ho- that, right down the road from the hospital. One time I was driving past and looked, and they were selling a small crocodile. Um, it's part of Liberian culture to shake hands. It's a very important part of the culture. Uh, but the, but it, the, the virus is passed on by sharing body fluids, and that can be one method of doing that. And that's been hard in the Liberians uh, uh, to not shake hands. They're starting to do the fist bump or the elbow bump and things, or, or the Ebola wave. Um, <laughs> It's, you know, you can, you can halt a lot of transmission just by simple hand washing, just normal hygiene, or what we consider normal hygiene. But remember, most people in the country don't have running water, so you have to buy every drop of water that you use or carry it. You're not going to wash your hands very often, so that makes it difficult. Uh, if someone passes on the virus and, and uh, gets, it on, gets uh, body fluids on his or her hands and puts his hands in his eyes, nose, or mouth, or in broken skin, then um, that person can become ill within, between 2 and 21 days later. Um, the disease is really not that hard to control. Uh, if you just isolate contacts and monitor them, then there's no outbreak. But this was very difficult early on in the, in the, in the outbreak for many reasons. We can discuss those if, you, if you're interested. Um, Many people worry about an outbreak here in the United States or North America or Europe, but I don't think that's going to be very likely. People are screened before they get on planes, screened for fevers. Uh, it's inevitable that someone else will step off a plane and become sick a few days later. Um, but once the disease is identified, uh, contacts will be isolated. With our health care system, even with the problems we have, uh, the likelihood of an outbreak is very, very low. 
So once we knew that Ebola was in Liberia, we decided to prepare. So we got online and found the WHO manual from 1997. We printed it out and uh, started training our staff. We trained every staff member, over 140 people. We held 17 two-hour sessions. Uh, the, the, the training included just basics of hygiene, uh, how to put on PPE, personal protective equipment, and also how to take care of Ebola patients. Um, we didn't have PPE, the personal protective equipment, so we just used bandanas and kitchen aprons and then just regular surgical gowns. You can learn the, the, just the basic techniques just from those things. We expected every staff member to, par- to, par- to participate, and most did. Here's one of our drivers. Here's one of our lab technicians. We even expected the business office folks to participate. And I told them, you know, I said, you can't be counting money and licking your fingers. I said, money is dirtier than toilets. Uh, and it's true of our money, too. If you've ever smelled a dollar bill, you know that's not very nice. So, um, and I said, you can't be counting your money and eating your donut. I was glad that we had that training because once we started taking care of patients, I took care of two cashiers from other hospitals who died of Ebola. And then the week that I left, I went up to the, our cashier's office to buy some, to pay for some medicine for Nancy Wrightball. And I looked inside and the two ladies in there were wearing gloves. So I was very happy to see that they were just, they were still implementing the training. Uh, it was gratifying to see hand washing improve in the hospital. Um, the, uh, and the glove usage went from about four boxes a day to about ten boxes a day. Uh, so they were, they were beginning to take things seriously. It was very gratifying to see that. Then we, we, we wanted to keep any potential Ebola patient out of the hospital. So we needed, needed a place to treat the patients. You, again, you can't bring them in your ER. You can't bring them in the hospital. So we looked at our little hospital. Where could we treat Ebola patients? And the, the, most ob, the obvious place was our chapel. So we decided to convert our chapel into an Ebola treatment unit. And, of course, that created quite a headache for poor David Wrightball, our services director. Here, David and his men are digging two deep latrine pits for disposing of liquid waste. And then here's here's David uh, uh, in the chapel uh, uh, posing. And it had just just been painted. God knew that we would need it as an Ebola treatment unit. Uh, There was also no lighting in it, very, very poor lighting. So we installed this beautiful, bright lighting. I said, I don't want anything worshipful. And here you can see the latrine pits with little huts on them now, a toilet and a little sink. And here the services guys are very proudly showing their, their little spigot. It's our water system. It's very simple, but it was very effective. And then we looked on YouTube and saw that at real Ebola units, uh, they dried boots and gloves on sticks. So I told the services guys, go find me the straight stick tree and make me a stick forest. So here it is. We needed a place to triage people. Again, you can't bring them in the ER to evaluate them to see can they go into the the ER or do they need to go down to the Ebola treatment unit. So Samaritan's Purse built us a beautiful uh, 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 triage tent. And here it is. And here's the inside. It was like an oven in there, but it worked very well. Nancy Wrightball is our personnel director, and she was essential to the work from the beginning. She's also a trained nurse's aide and she wanted to be involved in the, in the Ebola effort. So she was what we called her outside support person. Now the CDC would call her the observer or whatever, but she helped us get dressed, helped to decontaminate us, and she, um, 
uh, did the, did, uh, the um, inventory and did a lot of other things. And then she trained other missionaries, including Eric Buhler, who's here, and then Nancy Shepard and uh, several Liberians to do that job. Here she's showing Nancy Shepard how, uh, how to mix bleach. We went through our supplies and, and gathered everything we, we, we thought would be useful for the Ebola effort. But our cupboards were still pretty bare until the first pallet of supplies came from Samaritan's Purse. And Samaritan's Purse supplied and funded nearly everything regarding the Ebola effort at our institution. They uh, sent pallet after pallet after, after pallet like this, air freight. Um, and, and without them, without them, we could not have done this. When I remember, remember going to Kendall Caulfield, the Samaritan's Purse country director, with my first list of supplies. And I, I told him, I said, I feel very greedy. I've asked for hundreds of this and hundreds of that. Well, it turned out to be just a drop in the bucket uh, of what we needed. So now our cupboards aren't so bare. Uh, these boxes contain lactated ringers. To take care of Ebola patients, you need lots and lots and lots of IV fluids. Here, Karen with Samaritan's Purse is putting together blood pressure cuffs. Elizabeth is, is uh, 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 labeling garbage cans. Loie's labeling boots. And then Kent Brantley is showing Ruby how to mix bleach. Now, normally, Doctors Without Borders responds to Ebola outbreaks. Now, when I see Doctors Without Borders, I'm actually going to say MSF because that's the French acronym. So when you hear me say MSF, that's who I mean. But they're the ones that take care of Ebola outbreaks, but they weren't able, for various reasons, to respond to, to initially to, to the one in Liberia. But they sent several uh, uh, staff members down to just sur- survey the area and also to help us. And they toured our little unit and gave us great support and great advice. Here's Claudia from Italy and Anya from Germany. And Anya gave us their latest manual. But she said, Debbie, this is just a draft. It's for internal use o- only. Don't give it to anybody else. Well, I gave it to Samaritan's Purse, and now I've given it to all of our West Africa hospitals, and, now I've, and also I've given it to uh, several hospitals in the mid Willamette Valley of Oregon. So, sorry, Anya. <laughs> they spent an afternoon with us and showed us how to put on uh, the real PPE. You can see that Samaritan's Purse has now supplied us with the real stuff. Here is uh, our little unit, five-bed unit, ready to go. Uh, we now refer to this as ELWA-1. Elwa 1. You can see sprayers, garbage cans, everything ready. And then things went quiet for a while. We thought, oh, there's not going to be an Ebola outbreak. Well, our first case actually turned out to be sort of a false alarm. One day, Kent Brantley called me from the ER and said, Debbie, I have a man here who I think might have Ebola or maybe loss of fever. I'm not sure. Well, the patient ended up dying. And so I got two staff members, we got all dressed up, dragged the bed out to the triage tent, and then I came back and sprayed the area, sprayed the ER area. And then we called the Ministry of Health because the Ministry of Health needs to take the body for the family. You can't give the body to the family because they, 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 um, uh, they, the, if the patient does have Ebola or loss of fever, then the, the family might get sick and die. The blood test ended up showing that this man had loss of fever, but you treat the body the same way. It's still very dangerous. So the family got a coffin and dug the grave, but the authorities sort of dragged their feet, dragged their feet, dragged their feet, and this whole process took about almost two days. And so by the time we were, we were putting, uh, taking care of the body for the family and, putting, taking, and putting, uh, sealing the coffin, uh, the family had gathered a, a, a crowd of supporters, and they were outside the gate shouting and throwing stones. So finally the Ministry of Health did come and take the body for the family and help them bury it. 
but it really was a sobering introduction to the care of patients with viral hemorrhagic fevers. We had our first actual Ebola case eight days later on June 12th. Now, our staff, uh, they had been trained to take care of Ebola patients, but when the first patient came, as you can imagine, they were frightened. Um, they didn't really want to go down there and take care of that patient. And so we had to go around and, and just beg and cajole and, and just almost drag people down to help take care of the patient. But uh, we wanted almost everyone to, to at least try at least once, and most did. And after we would we'd go in, when we'd come out, we'd ask them, you know, how did you feel in there? And they would say, oh, I was so hot and uncomfortable. But then we'd ask them, did you feel safe? And they all said, yes, I felt safe. So it took a lot of the fear out of, out of taking care of the patients. And then we were able to get a core group of people that were willing to, to work in the unit full time. Later on, the Ministry of Health sent us four or five workers. And then, as time went on, then Samaritan's First sent us, sent us workers, too, to, to work in the, in the Ebola treatment unit. But wearing PPE, personal protective equipment, in the heat is quite, quite difficult. The temperature usually ranges between 90 and 100 degrees Fahrenheit, and then the humidity is also between 90 and 100 degrees. Over the suit, you need to wear double gloves and then a heavy rubber apron. And then the outside support person, Nancy, and here Elizabeth, help. That observer position is very, very important. Putting on PPE is not a solo effort. So here's Nancy taping, taping, taping Kent's gloves with duct tape. And here you can see us covered head to toe. We learned to write our names in our foreheads so we could tell who was who in the unit. So here's Dr. Debbie, here's Dorothy, and here's Dr. Natalie. Na- uh, Dorothy and Dr. Natalie are two Samaritan's purse ladies that are coming to, to learn the ropes. You can see we're covered head to toe here. And then we'd always pray before going in. It's a very important part of, of preparing. And when the burial team came to get a body, we would also get them in a circle and also pray for them. And several times on the Internet, I've seen pictures like this of the burial teams in Monrovia in a circle praying before they go into a home to get a body. And I, when I look at the, those pictures, I say, I think they learned that at ELWA. Um, when we would go in, we would take care of the patient's needs. And our first little, little treatment unit, uh, l one it was just our little team, and so we, we didn't have a second team to come in and finish up for us. So sometimes we were in there three or four hours taking care of the patients. It was difficult work, and sometimes I could shake my hands and I could, I could hear and feel the sweat sloshing around on my gloves. But here Kent Brantley is sitting at a patient's bedside talking to him. Uh, the patients often have diarrhea. You have to empty their, their runny stomach buckets. You have to clean the place, sweep it, and empty the, uh, just, just uh, uh, fill the bleach containers and, and give the patient IV fluid, whatever's needed for the patient. Here you can see Kent Brantley at the same patient's bedside showing the patient a little a Ranger Rick magazine that his children donated. This child is one of our first survivors. Um, <clears throat> you can't keep charts in the unit because then you have to burn the charts. So when you take vital signs and you have to come to the door and tell your outside support person, like Elizabeth, uh, tell the, her the vital signs. So here Kent Brantley is, is uh, 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 dictating the, the vital signs. And then here's Kent also uh, cleaning patient, patient care items. Again, you know, the patients have diarrhea or they're vomiting, and so you have to, have to put bleach in that and then, then empty it and then uh, sanitize the items. And then when we're finished, we would come out and be decontaminated one by one. The process of taking off the PPE is actually more important than, than, than putting it on because that's where you can get contaminated. So here we're waiting to, to, to get decontaminated. And then Nancy Shepard is spraying me off front and back. And then I would take, you take off that big rubber apron, apron put it in this, in this bucket of bleach, and then you get sprayed off again. 
And here I'm unzipping the suit, and the outside support person would have actually sprayed that zipper before I did that. And after every step, you go over and, and, uh, and rinse your gloved hands in, in chlorine, or chlorine solution or bleach, and then take off the last pair of gloves, and then the last step is to go through a foot bath um, uh, of bleach. And we would get quite dehydrated. Um, even though we would try to hydrate before going in, we would, we would still be very dehydrated. We'd be able to wring our sweats out uh, and, uh, after we came out. We would go sit down and, and try to rehydrate and do the patient's charting uh, before going in again. Now, we did not intend to be the only Ebola treatment unit for the, air, the whole city of Monrovia. Uh, MSF had gone down to the main medical center and had set up a beautiful 25-bed unit. Uh, they had trained the staff, and then they had to go back to Sierra Leone and Guinea. Well, unfortunately, that that unit never really functioned continuously, nor did it function well. Initially, um, the staff sometimes didn't even want to go go in and take care of the patients. They would just put the IV fluid and the medication inside the door and ask the patients to to give it to themselves. Uh, One patient, a Ugandan surgeon, was texting his friends outside saying, you know, they haven't fed me for four days. Uh, Sometimes the unit worked okay, but towards the end, one of the patients got out of the unit uh, chased all the staff away, and then went and got the diesel fuel that was used to burn the garbage. And she went into the room where all the PPE was, the boots and the suits and everything, and she burned all the personal protective equipment. So the Ministry of Health decided to wash its hands of Ebola care and sent word to us that they were going to close their unit, bring their staff and patients up to Elwa, and that we would be the Ebola care providers. Well, we were stunned. We were trying to run a, run a hospital and run this little unit, and we didn't have the capacity either by, with staff or room to take care of these patients. But we met with Samaritan's Purse, and Samaritan's Purse told us that, you know, at leadership, we, they, we, they were thinking of actually providing Ebola care. So they offered to take over Elwa, the, 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 the Ebola care at LWA, and also they wanted to take over the, um, the unit up in northern Liberia that was also not running very well. So we were very happy to hear that. That was great news. Um, <clears throat> so we began to aim towards, that, towards that, that plan. And then they also brought an epidemiologist, Tom Wood, and he told us, you know, this little five-bed unit will not be enough. Uh, you will need a bigger unit. So looking at our compound, across, our, across the road from our current hospital, Samaritan's Purse is building a beautiful new hospital. Well, this building is the laundry kitchen facility for that new hospital. It was just sitting there empty. And so the decision was made to go ahead and turn that into an Ebola treatment unit. That, began, that became ELWA-2. So Samaritan's Purse began to convert that. And then Tom Wood, their epidemiologist, said, you know, this whole Ebola thing is going to explode. Even this 25-bed unit is not going to be big enough. You need a big tent hospital. So they began to erect a big tent hospital on the ELWA compound, and that began, became ELWA-3. And I use those terms because if you get on the Internet you'll see ELWA 2 and ELWA 3 referenced uh, uh, in YouTube videos and, and news reports and things like that. Now, when you get a patient in the, uh, who comes to the ER, you can't let them in the ER uh, until you're sure they don't have Ebola. So we would have to triage people. So when people would, would come in with a fever, uh, then the doctor or the nurse would have to go up and make sure that patient doesn't have Ebola. Here's Kent Brantley talking to one of the ER nurses about a patient, uh, and here's the family standing by. Triage was, was difficult sometimes. Obviously, um, um, as you know, Ebola can mimic many other diseases. And also, it's hard to get histories from patients. Uh, every patient has a history of contact of some sort, either with a dead body or with a sick patient, but not all of them are willing to admit that. For some people in the culture, 
if you say something out loud, it can make it, they feel like it can make it come true, so they're not really willing to, willing to say that. I remember one time uh, I got word that there was an ambulance coming with two women in it. Dr. Fankhauser, John Fankhauser, went up in full PPE to triage the, the, the women. And he called me up later and he said, Debbie, uh, these two ladies don't seem very sick. I don't, not sure, I'm not sure they have Ebola. And I, I asked him, I said, did they tell you that the, they're the mother and the sister of the nurse downtown who just died of Ebola? And he said, no. So he went back to question them some more. And he told me later that he had to ask them four times. And only on the fourth time would, uh, would they admit that, yes, they're, they're, they're relatives of that, of that woman. So triage could was sometimes very challenging. This patient turned out not to have Ebola, actually. So, um, In spite of our best efforts, we did get one patient in the ER, at least one that we know of, that, that had Ebola. And so we decided to, to, to retrain our ER staff. Uh, so here we are with some of our ER nurses, and we're having role plays to, to, uh, and pretending to be uh, patients and lax security guards and, um, and angry family members. Here's Ramel, one of our ER nurses, or one of our uh, nurses pretending to be an Ebola patient. You can see that she probably has Ebola because she looks so sick. During that training, uh, they learned one, this song, the Ebola symptom song. And um, I'm not going to sing it for you. I want you to sing it. Okay? It, comes, it goes to the tune of Ten Little Indians. So here we go. Headache, vomiting, runny stomach, too much weakness, pain in tummy, pain in muscle, swallow, hurts him, hiccups, and can't breathe. He wants to vomit, he can't eat, went to a funeral, touched the body. Someone near him has just died, maybe he's a case. So now, <laughs> so now if you see a patient, you'll be able to triage him or her properly for Ebola. But the training did pay off. Our prayer was that, um, that no one in our staff would die of Ebola. Um, and we did lose two staff members, uh, but we think that they got their Ebola from the community. Uh, three other staff members got sick, but all three of those survived. And so far, we haven't had anyone die from, 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 from getting Ebola from a patient. I uh, just pray that that continues. Pray for continued protection of our staff members. Um, it was difficult to take care of so many previously healthy young people who, uh, who died of Ebola. And one such case was Francis. Uh, we all love Francis. He, was, uh, he sold used clothes downtown. And one day he told us that the slipper salesman next to him got sick. And he was so sick he couldn't walk, so Francis carried him home. Well, the slipper salesman died several days later. And then a week later, Francis came to us with Ebola. And Francis was quite ill, but then he seemed to do better, and then all of a sudden, sudden died. And it was, just, it was difficult for us because we knew Francis died because he was a good Samaritan. He was just trying to help his neighbor out. And that's a problem with lots of the people who get Ebola in West Africa is there are people who are trying to help someone else, help a family member, help a neighbor, and that's how they contracted Ebola. By the way, uh, this, this person's holding the wall clock there. You can't take pulses with your watch because you can't wear your watch. So she's, we're just, we used a wall clock to, uh, to, to take vital signs. Um, after six weeks into the outbreak, we only had three survivors. Two of them were young boys. And here's one of our first survivors. And here's Kent Brantley, John Finkhauser, and Dr. Brown with our little survivor. Uh, he a, 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 comes from a, a Muslim family, but they heard the gospel when he was in the unit, and they've remained very grateful to this day. The week I left Liberia, uh, his uncle and this boy uh, came, came to my house and again expressed gratitude for the care that they got at ELWA. Here's our second survivor, little William. William is now an orphan. 
Um, his mother was a nurse's aide, and she died because she gave a bath to one of the nurses at another hospital. Um, so, and and uh, William, I think William is now in an orphanage. Um, but that's one, another problem with, with the Ebola epidemic. Is, is it leave, it's leaving many orphans. So pray for William. He, he prayed to accept Jesus when he was in the, in the, in the unit. Um, well, work continued on Elwa 2. Um, but El, the work on Elwa 3 had to stop. Leadership, SIM and, and Samaritan's Purse and Elwa leadership had met with the community uh, and were tr- trying to, uh, to explain to them what was happening. But there were some, uh, some, uh, some members of the community that were not happy with this big tent hospital that was going up. And they threatened violence and began to demonstrate uh, leadership made the rounds of government hospitals, I mean, government offices, trying to, uh, trying to get support and, and get security. Um, eventually, the Liberian National Police had to be deployed on the compound. And I hear, I wasn't, didn't see it because I was working, but uh, I understand the UN military showed up one time with riot gear, and another time even the Liberian Army showed up with a tank to disperse a crowd. Here you can see the Samaritan's Purse leadership, Dr. Lance Plyler and, and Kendall Caulfield meeting with the vice president. And they explained to, uh, to, the, um, to, the, to the officials that, you know, not building this hospital is not an option. Liberia is going to need it because this is just going to explode. And the number of cases did continue to, to explode. Well, finally, Elwa 2 was ready. So July 20th was, was moving day. It was quite an exciting day. Uh, here you can see the inside of, of, of a cubicle, and here's where you can see the cubicles there. Um, so the week before this, Dr. Kent Brantley had gone down to the main medical center. He had trained their staff and uh, gotten them ready to come up and join us. So July 20th, the patients from Elwood 1 and the patients from JFK came up and joined us along with all the staff. And then the effort was then turned over to Samaritan's Purse. So Samaritan's Purse took, took over the, the Ebola, uh, Ebola treatment unit at that time. And here's Dr. Brantley. He became the medical director, and here he is with the, having his first staff meeting with the, with the workers. Things seem to be going very well. Uh, here you can see the staff getting ready to go in, take care of patients. Here are the outside support crew getting ready to de- decontaminate people. And, of course, they always prayed before going in and taking care of patients. But then two days later, July 22nd, Nancy Wrightball developed a fever. The day after that... Dr. Kent Brantley developed a fever. And then July 26th, their Ebola tests both came back positive. And needless to say, we were quite stunned. At the same time, um, the um, Samaritan's Purse team up in FOIA came under attack. Now, they had, they had taken over the Ebola treatment unit up, up in FOIA on July 8th, but they came under attack. And so Samaritan's Purse pulled their people out of the north and redeployed them down at Elwa 2. But that week... Um, uh, because of the burgeoning number of cases and because of the violence and just, just the, the, the deteriorating situation, uh, Samaritan's Purse leadership met with the president and told her that this whole problem has outstripped the capabilities of, uh, of two private organizations. They said, you know, you need to appeal to the international community. This has now become an international uh, uh, crisis. So Samaritan's Purse and uh, SIM uh, began to evacuate their workers from the country. And those of us who were left at that time turned our attention to the care of Kent and Nancy. Here's the outside of the right ball house, looking like an Ebola treatment unit. Um, now, when we started this, our personnel director, Nancy Wrightball, told us that if you get Ebola, there's no way to evacuate you because our travel insurance would not cover us if we got Ebola. However, when, this, when, this, when Kent and Nancy got sick, 
SIM began to make phone calls, and one of our missionaries has, uh, has been discipling someone at the State Department for several years. And he called this person and said, is there anything we can do for Kent and Nancy? Well, this official said, you know, there is, is a plane that's been outfitted for such a, such a thing. It's been in the hangar for 12 years, but it's only for diplomats. And Bob said, well, what can we do? And he said, well, maybe we can renegotiate this contract. So he did. And late, later that week, uh, we knew the plane was on its way. But meanwhile, we, we had, to, had to keep Kent and Nancy alive. Uh, David Wrightball was and is just a, a, a man of incredible faith. He was just a rock, and he was very encouraging to us. Here he is holding the door open for me. I'm going to get decontaminated by Carrie. She's a Samar- one of the Samaritan's Purse uh, nurse practitioners. And Nancy is in the house, very, very sick from Ebola. And here he is smiling for the camera and is encouraging to us. Um, there weren't very many people that were able at that time to help with the care. So even David Wrightball uh, suited up to go in and help, help, help with his wife's care. Here's Kathy, one of the Samaritan's Purse nurses, helping him get dressed. Um, David Wrightball, John Fankhauser, and I belong to a select group of, group of people. Uh, we have uh, cooked, washed dishes, and done laundry wearing full PPE. <clears throat> the Oregonian newspaper posted this picture on their website, but the caption, the caption read, Dr. Debbie fixes a snack for herself in the Wrightball kitchen. <laughs> and I called her up and I said, you know, please change that. They're going to say, no wonder those stupid missionaries got Ebola. Here's David at Nancy's bedroom window uh, visiting with her. Now, there was an NIH scientist there in country at the lab uh, who uh, came and talked to members of our team and then came and talked to Nancy at her window and also Kent at his bedroom window. She talked about three different uh, uh, experimental treatments available for Ebola. And it was discovered that one one treatment, uh, a course of one treatment, was actually in Sierra Leone. So arrangements were made to fly that down. And here is, as you know, the Z-map that was used for Kent and Nancy. Uh, here it's being mixed on the kitchen counter in the right ball house. And I told David and Nancy, I said, keep those bottles. They should be family heirlooms. They say on them, for research purposes only, not for human use. <laughs> and here's John Fankhauser hanging one of the, one of the, uh, um, of the uh, infusions. Well, we were very thrilled when the plane came for Kent and he, here he is uh, walking out of the ambulance in, in, in Atlanta. And then it took three days, uh, three days later, Nancy was able to be evacuated. And here the team is um, uh, loading Nancy onto the back of the pickup truck. And then I was able to climb in and ride to the airport with her. We were just thrilled to see her take off into the, into the night. The next night, uh, the team went out for supper. Uh, and it was just a, a, we had, of course, they had a good night of sleep, and we were just, just thrilled to know that both Kent and Nancy were in good hands. Um, the plan was for all of us to be, um, to be evacuated the next morning. And, however, about 3 o'clock in the morning, SIM headquarters called me and said, you know, you and David and John can't go because you and David are contacts. So the rest of the team, the Samaritan's Purse team, left. Here's Kendall Caulfield, the uh, country director. Here's, here's Ed Carnes. Uh, he's a doctor that, who flew in just to take care of Nancy. He is here at this conference, by the way. Anyway, the Samaritan's te- Purse team took off, and then uh, John and David and I stayed. And SIM leadership debated what to do with this. Initially, the thought was that we could stay there until our quarantine time was up. But then they thought, well, what if they get sick? You know, there's not many people to take care of them at this point. We don't have any stuff. And then even getting to the airport would be quite a challenge. 
So SIM decided to spend the big bucks, and they sent us a very nice plane. By the way, um, the no tax money was used for any of these evacuations. Samaritan's Purse paid for Kent's evacuation. SIM paid for Nancy's and our evacuation. So here's our plane on the tarmac. Um, and here's Don Fankhauser and I on the, on the plane. David Wrightball took the picture. Uh, when I got back to uh, SIM headquarters in Charlotte, I asked our president, Bruce Johnson, uh, if I could go back to the mission field on this plane. And um, <laughs> he said no. Um, our mission headquarters in Charlotte is on a very nice wooded piece of property, and in the, on the back of it are some um, RV hookups. So they got some RVs, and, and, and uh, we stayed in these RVs. And we called it a bowl of summer camp. <laughs> so it was a very nice time. Um, uh, we waited out our quarantine there. It was a very busy time, actually, but it was good. Uh, when Nancy got out of the hospital, she came camping with us. But the suffering in Liberia continues. Uh, this is a picture I took of ELWA3 the day before I left. If you Google or put in YouTube uh, the largest Ebola treatment unit in the world, you'll see an incredible flyover of what ELWA3 looks like now. Uh, after we left, MSF was invited into the country, and um, they took over ELWA3 and have made it into, into a huge tent city. Um, and so MSF, Doctors Without Borders, is running ELWA3 now. Uh, at one time, one of the doctors has said that, that M, at ELWA3, all they can offer is a bed and oral rehydration because they didn't have the staff. I'm not sure what they're able to do at this point. At one point, there were so few beds for Ebola patients in Monrovia that people were wandering uh, the area of the compound um, and uh, the community outside. Now I understand that there are empty beds in Monrovia for Ebola patients. Dr. Jerry Brown, our medical director, is now running ELWA2, uh, but he struggles to do that with, uh, w- uh, sometimes it w- because it's difficult to get PPE and medical supplies. Uh, there are more survivors now. WHO uh, estimates that, um, that the death rate now is about 70%, so it's better than it was uh, when we started. Um, many of you know that Dr. Rick Sacra came in uh, to help Jerry Brown open the hospital. Our hospital had had to close during this time, and they wanted to open the hospital for OB patients. Uh, Dr. Saker got sick from an OB patient, and our hospital then had to, had to, be, had to be closed except just to uh, pre-registered OB patients. I understand that there have seen more than that right now, but that's a major catastrophe uh, that, that the, the press is not talking about. Uh, in Monrovia right now, there are very few places you can go to get a C-section, uh, treatment for a ruptured appendix, malaria, a broken arm, um, and WHO uh, estimates that the death toll from malaria is going to exceed that of, of, of Ebola. Um, the, uh, the, the Ministry of Health has struggled to, main, to, to keep up with the bodies. Uh, I've read that in the, la- in the last week and a half, two weeks, that the number of bodies has decreased. No one knows yet if, if that means that the Ebola epidemic is slowing down or perhaps people are just hiding their patients uh, and hiding the bodies. Uh, the Ministry of Health has started burning the bodies, and, and that's difficult for families. So, again, we don't know if the Ebola epidemic is actually slowing down or if people just are hiding the bodies. So what can we do? Um, we can't turn our backs. That's not what Jesus would do. And we read in Proverbs, Deliver those who are being taken away to death, and those who are staggering to slaughter or hold them back. If you say, See, we did not know this. Does he not consider it who weighs the heart? And does he not know it who, weighs, who keeps your soul? And will he not render to man according to his work? So again, 
we, we, need, we need to do what we can, what we can do. Uh, it seems like an impossible thing at this time, but when things are impossible, that's when God does his best work. We can pray, pray for an end of the epidemic, protection for all workers, for more workers for Ebola treatment and for Elwa Hospital, safety for those treating patients at Elwa Hospital, for spiritual results in Liberia, repentance and discipleship, for wisdom for SIM and SP leadership, safety for Dr. John Fankhauser, who's still there, and Dr. Jerry Brown, our medical director, and then the Samaritan's First Community Health Team. Um, and I believe that some of them are still on the ground at this point. And the wisdom for SIM missionaries regarding when to return. We can give. Give through SIM USA or Samaritan's Purse. You can also give through Doctors Without Borders. And you can go. You can go with SIM, mainly to work in the hospital. I'm not sure they need help in the Elwa 2 treatment unit because I think the Liberian staff is taking care of that. But that there's the need to open the hospital more fully. Samaritan's Purse is doing community health teaching. They're trying to teach people how to take care of Ebola patients in their homes. And then Doctors Without Borders um, uh, needs help in the, in, the, in the various treatment centers that they have. So the, the pray, give, and go is on a handout in the back. If you would implement that, pick, pick, the, pick that up. If, there, if we run out, then there will be more on the table down in the, uh, uh, in the booth afterwards. So I, that's all I have. I think we have time for questions. So... Who has, who has a question? Thank you. She asked about this, are there other Christian organizations in helping? And I'm sure there are. I don't have personal knowledge of, of a lot of them, but there, there are lots and lots of mission organizations, lots and lots of missionaries in Liberia. So I don't have any personal knowledge of, 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 of a lot of them. It's hard to get information even about what's happening with ELWA, SIM, and, and Samaritan's Purse on the ground. But like I said, Dr. John Finkhauser went in to help Dr., get Dr. Saker out, and he remained. He is there now, but is planning to leave in the next week or two. Um, and there's another Samaritan, another SIM short-term doctor who's there right now. Again, the hospital is open on a very limited basis. Most of the missionaries are still out because many of them have families, and it's not an appropriate place to have children if there's no functioning hospital in, this, in, the, in the country. Um, the, I know a Samaritan's Purse team did go in and was teaching community health. But I, I don't know if they're still there. I think if you want to know, and Eric's nodding his head, yes. But if you want to know, ask at the booth. Stop at the booth and ask what they're doing right now. Because um, I'm, I'm not the expert on that. So, so anybody else? Yes. He's asking about medical evacuation of, of workers if, if they come down with Ebola. And you know, your, your staff, your organization needs to have a plan in place. Um, our, our organization does, and I believe Samaritan's First does, but it would be specific to our organizations. You need to, have, you need to arrange for evacuation before you put people on the ground. 
No, uh uh-uh. Not that I'm aware of. I mean, someone else can speak to that maybe, but not that I'm aware of, no. Mm-mm. So, yes, uh-huh. He's asking about the U.S. military field hospitals, what, the, what will be used after the war, how they will be used after the war, and are our organizations talking to the State Department and U.S. military about that? I'm not aware of that. I know that our SIM during this whole crisis was talking to the government a lot, but I don't know if they're talking about that specifically. I don't know, I don't know that. The, pro- the problem would not be the st- having a structure. The problem would be having staff. Uh, that's the big problem in Liberia is, is, is medical manpower. Yes, back there. He asked how successful we were in keeping the Ebola out of our hospital, basically. That's your question, right? Um, we know of one patient who came into our ER uh, and then was brought down to the Ebola treatment unit and, and died there. Uh, there may have been one other case. We're not really sure about the status of that case. But um, the, I don't know of any other, other cases specifically, but we, we, we had a real strict triage system. You sat outside and got your temperature taken, and you had, had a fever, then you had to, had to be triaged specially. Many people who, were, who just had a fever and had suspicious symptoms were then sent to the triage tent and on to the Ebola treatment unit. And we had suspect patients that were there until the fourth day of their illness when we could do a blood test. And then if they didn't have Ebola, then we could send them to the regular hospitals. So there were quite a few people that were there who didn't have Ebola who were maintained and managed in the Ebola treatment unit until they could be proven not to have Ebola. And you have to do that, otherwise you're going to get Ebola patients in your hospital. So I think we were fairly successful. Um, I know that after Rick left... There were two more Ebola um, uh, OB patients with Ebola that came into the hospital, so they've had to beef up the uh, the triage system again. So, yes, here in the in the gray shirt. The the what? He asked about the mortality rate that we saw. Early in the epidemic, it was more than 70%. I, I don't really know that. You know, I haven't really added that up and figured that out, but I know it, was, it seemed like it was higher than 70%. Um, but, uh, so I don't, I don't know that for sure. So, yes, in the, yes, James. He asked, where is the, is, who's testing the blood, where is it being tested, and is it reliable? Um, initially, the C, I believe it was the CDC set up a lab near the airport, which is about 45 minutes away from our hospital. It was difficult to get, get, get the blood drawn, get it out there, but, but, the, but the tests seemed to be quite reliable. It was, it was monitored and, 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 and managed by the, by the CDC. And now, they're down, and now uh, on the campus, actually in Nancy, where Nancy Wrightball's office was, is another lab. So uh, the blood can be tested right at, on campus. And it takes about six hours to get a blood test uh, for, the, for the blood to be run. 
So my experience it was quite was quite reliable. Yes, down here, Mar. Say that what? She asked about the malaria rate. I don't know that the malaria rate has gone up, but it's just that people are having trouble finding treatment for malaria. There's doctors and clin- do- hospitals and clinics are closed, and so and doctors have fled the country. So, um, so the, the WHO is concerned about the just normal diseases like malaria that people can't get treatment for them. So, and then again in the front row here, question. He asked about the Ministry of Health. I, I can't really speak to that because we left shortly after that, but I know WHO came in to help, MSF came to help, many other organizations. Now U.S. military is there to help. So I think a lot of other organizations have come in to help beef up uh, uh, their resources. So I'm, I, know, I know that they're very, very heavily involved. So I don't really know. I can't speak to that at this point. Maybe Rick can, but Rick's right there in the plaid shirt. You can ask him maybe, but I don't really know that specifically. Um, so. Yes. He asked how the longest I had to wear protective gear. I think probably uh, the longest period I did was like four hours, which is uh, MSF recommends that you not wear it for more than an hour and a half. Uh, and but once we had more staff in Elwood two, then we would go in, work for about 45 minutes, come out, and then another team would come in and follow us and finish the work. And so we had a constant stream of teams coming in. At Elbow One, we didn't have that. So we just stayed till the work was done. And that's not really the MSF model. It's not ideal, but it's, but it's what we had. So, yes, right there. She asked about, um, did we have enough PPE? Did we run out and have to use anything else? And, and Samaritan's Purse supplied us very generous, generously. We really never ran out of PPE. Initially, though, we didn't have the hoods. And so when we'd zip up our suit under our mask, we'd have this little triangle of skin exposed. So Nancy Brightball uh, took some Tyvek booties, and she cut them open, and then she would tape them on, on, on our sides of our heads with duct tape. We called it our beards. So we could have a, a, a white beard or a gray beard, you know, and that was very, it worked very well. And then we, then we got the hoods and then we were completely covered. So we were, we were very fortunate in that Samaritan's Purse just continuously supplied us. We, we never lacked for protective gear. What we lacked for was protective gear in the hospital. Um, it was a struggle to get gloves and aprons and different things in the hospital itself. Um, so, yes, right here. Uh-huh. She's asking about my plans. I don't really know yet. Um, I would like to return, but I don't know yet. Um, right, now, right now, my mission has asked me to go to an area near Atlanta, uh, Anniston, uh, Alabama, to where they have the, apparently the, the FEMA training center, whatever, and they want me to try out to be a trainer 
for to help to train people going to Ebola units. So that's where I'll go December 1st. So we'll see what happens after that. So, yes. He asked about why why our mission is not fully there and why Samaritan's Purse is not there. Uh, MSF is they're the they're the they're the Ebola responders in the world, and that's what they do. Uh, that is their their goal, and and that's they're funded for that. SIM is not a relief organization, uh, and we're, we're our focus is to try to get the hospital up and running, and so that's what we'd like to do. Uh, but we you know. Um, before this, before the Ebola epidemic, SIM only had two doctors at the hospital. So it's not like we have huge numbers of doctors. So, um, and then the, uh, uh, so this, it, we, we have to get supplies for the hospital and staff and just, it's just the hospital was in, was in a sort of a rebuilding stage even before this began. Uh, our, our team in Liberia was, was very small. Um, so the, and then people with families, again, it's not, there, Without a functioning hospital, a functioning um, healthcare system in the in the in, in this country, uh, uh, SIM doesn't want to send people with families into the into the country. So there's just multiple issues. So, yes. He asked about how would a person of faith would be, would be received by MSF. When MSF came to us, they, they said, they were kind of joking. He says, we don't partner with anybody. But, you know, they were awesome partners. They were wonderful. And I found them to be lovely to work with. And uh, some of them came and worked with us in Elwa too. Um, and I would encourage anyone who's interested in working in an Ebola treatment unit, go with MSF. They are an awesome organization and would welcome you with open arms. So I would have no qualms about going to work with MSF, and they they would um, they would I'm sure would want you. So, did that answer your question? Sort of. Okay. Well, what 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 else did you want? Would they be restricted in terms of a spiritual ministry? Oh, I don't know that. Uh, I, I assume not. I mean, they they were with us when we prayed with patients, and and never batted an eye about that. I mean. Spiritual care is part of part of part of taking care of people. So um, I, I wouldn't. I, I don't. I don't. They certainly didn't didn't seem to be concerned about it when they were working with us. So I would say go. So yes. Okay, he asked, he asked about disinfection. Um, the, uh, uh, the Ebola virus is actually quite fragile. Even UV light, soap and water, dilute chlorine solutions can deactivate it. Um, to find out information about how to get your clinic ready, uh, a couple, couple resources. First of all, from SIM, you can get the, um, there's a resource that written by Dr. John Fankhauser about how to get your clinic and hospital ready. Then I wrote a, curic- I wrote a curriculum for our West Africa hospitals, how to prepare for Ebola, and then there's the MSF manual. 
the one I'm not supposed to send you, but, uh, but uh, that is very comprehensive and explains how to mix solutions and how to prepare and everything. So the combination of those resources would be very, could be very helpful for your, uh, your institution. Yes. He asked about how did Kent Brantley and Nancy Wrightball uh, get sick. Uh, that's sort of public information now. Before I would say, no, that's private patient information. You can't. So they, we asked the CDC to do a formal investigation and make it public. Um, the, the, the investigation wasn't done terribly well, but there are two possibilities. One is uh, there are two healthcare workers in our facility that, that, that got Ebola in the community and came to work sick. And then also Dr. Brantley. Uh, went to the ER and helped clean up after that patient that had Ebola, so he, he possibly could have been exposed there. The threat is not taking care of people wearing full PPE. I would not hesitate to go to an Ebola treatment unit to take care of patients wearing full PPE. That's the safest place. But it's endemic in the community, and you need to be careful taking care of regular patients in, in just the clinics and hospitals. You need to protect yourself. You need to protect yourself generally in the community because people in the community can be ill. This is not the time to go out to the bazaar and have cultural experiences and things like that. So, uh, but, um, but they did not get sick in taking care of patients. Um, uh, Nancy was never in taking care of patients. And Kent just followed the protocol very carefully. MSF worked alongside of us our last few weeks there, and they had no qualms about working in our unit, had no concerns about our, our protocol. So I think one more minute. So, yeah, one more question. MSF doctors what? There was an MSF, a doctor working with MSF in Sierra Leone who got sick and died. I think that was even before Kent Brantley, Kent and Nancy got sick. And um, there have been other, I think there have been a total of, uh, yeah, yeah, I was going to say Craig Spencer, the guy in New York, and then there have been a total of 15 uh, national health care workers who've gotten Ebola. And the thing is, I don't know if they got Ebola taking care of patients or whether they got, got it in the community. I suspect that he just got it in the community, but I'm not really sure. So, um, but I, I'm, not, I'm not privy to all that information. So anyway, I think it's time to quit. So, okay? All right. <laughs>